Welcome to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, with Sandra Banyats and Phoebe Maris. Hi, I'm Phoebe. And my name is Sandra. And you're listening to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, a podcast series where we want to talk about current research in journalism. And Happy New Year! Yeah, so in 2018, we're hoping to bring you some uh, exciting new podcasts, and we also hope that you'll be with us as we continue exploring what's going on in journalism research. We're looking at six different countries in this study. Um, Germany, Australia, the United Kingdom, the United States, the Netherlands, and which one did I forgot now? Um, Austria. Yes, or did I say that? I don't know. Uh, okay, so Austria, obviously, now that we're here. So the person you just heard was Alyosha Karim Shapals. He's a research associate at QUT, Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, where he is working on a three-year project called Journalism Beyond the Crisis, funded by the Australian Research Council, which we're going to talk about a little bit more later. And Alyosha is a young scholar who finished his PhD a couple of years ago. So we wanted to know how he ended up doing what he does now. Yeah, I've been working as a journalist myself, both for um, a German government or organization, but also for the Financial Times in London, where I was doing my PhD at the time. And um, what I'd realized from that is that as much as I enjoyed doing that, and I really did, um, but I was always very uh, um, um, curious about wider implications and questions of that profession. I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed the craft that I think journalism is. And I think it is a craft to be able to convey information in an, in an accessible manner, which is what, what we're doing today. Um, and um, yeah, so, so it, was, it was a great time. But equally, as I say, I always had these questions such as, you know, the way I, I would write a story, um, what effect does that have on the audience? Um, you know, how is that information understood and how does the way I use my sources perhaps impact on the way I'm writing the story? All these questions and I think that's quite a good starting point for being in academia because we all, you know, we all preoccupied with these questions. Um, and so I started my PhD in London, which I did on the um, Arab Spring um, uprising. Um, even though that's a very much a questionable term, I'm sometimes hesitant to use it because we know that things didn't work out the way they maybe should have. Um, so yeah, uh, writing about that, um, and in particular how um, people on the ground use social media to organize the protest movement, and then specifically how journalists actually verified that information when social media was their main source um, of coverage at the time. What makes the Arab Spring uprising quite fascinating is that it was one of the earlier instances where social media was used by journalists to access sources on the ground when the journalists couldn't be there themselves. 
And journalists continue to rely on content produced by audiences such as tweets and videos and other microblogging as sources, especially in live blogging. Um, and that brings us to the next topic. What exactly is a live blog? What are its possible benefits for journalism? Well, it's interesting because I think it, it very gradually emerged and now it's very much established. I think Neil actually himself uh, defined that as a default news format, which I think it really is. Um, when you go on the website of, say, The Guardian, for example, or BBC News, it's incredible to see how many stories are covered by a live blog these days. And you can kind of see why, because it does come with certain benefits that I think the audience just appreciates that. And those being, for example, that you can actually see that as an event unfolds, you become, it's almost like you become part of it. Because what a live blog does is that it um, shows these um, quite succinct but um, frequent and regular updates as an event unfolds. Um, it's almost like, it's almost like, it's difficult to describe. Um, say there's a breaking news scenario and then someone producing a live blog would react to that. And as the event unfolds, he or she um, adds more and more updates to what is actually happening at, at the time. And so you get this reverse chronological order of individual updates um, as, as an e event is unfolding. And I think what that does is that it kind of invites the audience to be part of the news gathering process. The audience becomes part of this of the story actually as well as for example if you're uh, on the ground or if you're an eyewitness um bbc news in particular very because they have something called the bbc i think it's called the user generated hub and what they do is they invite um, audience contributions from eyewitnesses as they are on the ground to contribute to that story and um, i think if i remember correctly um the very One of the, I think, defining moments of user-generated content was when in 2007 um, there was a terror attack in, on the London Underground. Or was it 2005? And yeah, so that was a really defining moment, I think, of that whole era of user-generated content. And um, what a live blog does is, as I say, um, invite the audience to be part of the news gathering process and to see information coming from all types of sources um, being displayed in reverse chronological order and then to uh, yeah to to receive these updates and to find out more about an event as it unfolds i think that's the special thing about it together with neil thurman alyosha studied these live blogs and while they kind of expected that live blogging journalists would turn to the public for information in the end they actually found quite the contrary And I think that it was a fascinating finding for us as well that, you know, we, we did obviously kind of anticipate that the range of um, unofficial sources would be higher. Um, and there were, you know, they did include lots of unofficial sources too. But what, what was interesting that following up from that content analysis was that we then ended up speaking to journalists and asked them specifically, you know, why did you source your information in this way why did you choose a correspondent over a citizen in that instance and it was so interesting to see that um, 
what turned out to be the case is that they would only rely on civic accounts when there was no other information available. Um, and we just found that to be a fascinating thing. I spoke to this one journalist who I won't mention uh, now in this interview. Um, but she, uh, um, she said that if she had a choice, she would always go back to the established correspondent, what we label in the paper as usual suspects, um, for the simple reason that she knows that those people have been trained to follow the same standards of verification that he or she, I won't say who it is, uh, has been taught to pursue. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, as you say, a fascinating uh, example because it, it was just contrary to what we initially expected. This sounds quite self-referential in that journalists end up relying on their own faithful sources. What happens if newsrooms just quote each other when they are faced with an event that requires an immediate information feed from those on the ground? It's very much a curation process. It's curating all types of different voices. And I can kind of see those pressures when you have to produce something quickly and you know you can't necessarily verify something then either it has to come with a caveat you have to be able to say that you know we did gather that information we can't at this stage verify whether this is true or not so it does have to come with that house warning so to speak to um, you know m make readers aware that, that this is necessarily confirmed information or in the other instance rely on existing material so that you know if it would turn out to be inaccurate which is what, what one of the journalists said that if it would turn out to be inaccurate it wouldn't be their fault because you know it's been produced by someone else which is yeah interesting in its own right one way journalists try to overcome this challenge with sources is by shifting their focus from being objective to being transparent something that the new digital forms of journalism make a lot easier to do I think a benefit actually is the fact that um, you do have this increased level of transparency. So when mistakes do occur, they are highlighted in color. And often in the next update, they refer back to that and say, sorry about the previous thing, we got that wrong. So I think at, at the end of the day, it's up to the reader whether they prefer to wait and have like an in-depth in analysis of um, you know, the entire event as it, as it unfolded or whether they quite like the idea of, you know, being in that moment and um, getting all the information as it happens. Live blogging is obviously a new form of journalism, which makes us wonder what other forms of journalism are being practiced out there. And this brings us to the research project that Alyosha is currently working on at QUT, which tackles the broader question of what is journalism? The project is called Journalism Beyond the Crisis and wants to answer this question by looking at emerging forms of journalism as the industry is trying to adapt to the digital environment. And in the project, they're focusing on six countries, Austria, Australia, Germany, the Netherlands, the UK and the US. But what do they mean with emerging forms and what falls into this very broad spectrum? Well, I think that's a very interesting question because it touches on the definition of journalism and what we understand it to be these days and it's ever transforming um, you know I think that it's more and more difficult to define looking at these websites we wanted to ensure that they actually have some sort of outreach you know that there is 
um, that it does attract a certain audience that they're popular and that they're actually being read because I think it's only then when we can genuinely make the these uh, draw these conclusions on the democratic implications of that impact so the way we've been doing this is to uh, look at these six different countries and see which are the most popular websites in those countries um, this obviously ends up being a huge list um, and I think we've selected the ones that um, some of them are legacy media outlets but some of them are emerging ones what was important for us was to come up with a sort of typology of um, being able to map which outlets are actually out there because as we know there's been this explosion of you know emerging and, and new websites and so to first actually map and set out which outlets are out there i think that was an important stage to begin with um, and as a result of that we then worked on interviews with um, different journalists working at these organizations to see whether they actually understand them uh, see themselves as journalists how they see their profession changing in the digital era how they position themselves with other media outlets such as you know, legacy news media, but also other emerging media such as BuzzFeed, for example. And finally, um, and I think by the end of the project, we're hoping to synthesize all that information and to um, be able to draw conclusions on what all that means for journalism standing in democracy. But yeah, which of these websites can be defined as journalism and which not? I think that is a question that we're looking at further down the line because it's increasingly difficult to really define that and to draw these specific boundaries. Um, so that's what we're working on at the moment. It sounds like this is a question that will keep researchers busy for a long time as journalism continues to change in this new digital environment. But of course, and as always, we wanted to know what Alyosha thinks are some of the other pressing questions in journalism research. I had literally just returned quite recently from Sydney where I was doing quite a few in-depth interviews with journalists for our project and it was really interesting to see how many um, journalists that I'd interviewed there were genuinely felt threatened by fake news. So I think that is absolutely a subject that's here to stay um, and precisely for the reason and I've just presented a paper on this at the Future of Journalism conference in Cardiff. Um, they felt extremely concerned by fake news and they felt that it would challenge the very definitions of journalism as we, um, as we know them. So being a watchdog over society, speaking truth to power. You know, when people lose that essential trust in the media, then um, I think that concern that they were, they were having is valid. Um, and equally what was really interesting and what came out of those interviews but other interviews as well was um, the extent to which audience metrics and analytics influence the, um, the sort of stories that journalists produce these days. Um, I'd spoken to a journalist, which again I won't mention, um, who said that in his, um, at his institution um, they were he he remembers quite a few scenarios where he was specifically asked not to cover a certain story because the analytics and the metrics and all these numbers had proven that those stories didn't really work well with the audience and um and the, obviously that can be 
a sad development when these are often subjects that are actually important to talk about. There was one scenario, um, again, coming out of interviews where in Australia, where journalists said oftentimes indigenous coverage doesn't actually work well with the audience. But then again, it's a hugely important subject to talk about. And then what do you do if the numbers don't correspond to that? Um, so I think, yeah, analytics for sure. Um, but also um, the issue of fake news, I think, is here to stay. So that was it for today, for this edition. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you want to know more about Ayosha's work and the project Journalism Beyond the Crisis, you can go to the QOT webpage. And if you'd like to know more about our research, you can find us at the Journalism Studies Center at the University of Vienna. And our website is journalismstudies.univ.ac.at. There you can also find information on the rest of our team, Daniel Nölleke and Hannah Siegel, led by Volker Hanusch, and also our contact details if you'd like to get in touch. We hope you'll be around for our next podcast, where we're going to be talking with Eric Albeck on political journalism in Denmark. The music you heard today comes from Blue Dot Sessions. And we also want to thank Lisa Kiesenhofer again for lending us her beautiful voice and also Radio Campus for lending us their equipment. My name is Sandra. And I'm Phoebe. Until next time. See ya. See ya.